Night falls on the golden age of humanity. Sons shall turn upon their father, and his worlds drown in blood. The eye shall open, and the galaxy will burn. Join us, listeners. We go into the canon lore of the Forge World Black Books on Heresy Grad School. Professors Jason, Patrick, and Dave, myself, will dive into the lore of the Black Books and the Black Library novels that we know and love and explore the heresy as history. So get a coffee, get your notebook out, and uh, prepare to explore heresy as history with us on Heresy Grad School. Alrighty, welcome back. Off guard. Yeah, well, Craig has a tendency to do that, right? <laughs> um, well, everybody, welcome back to another uh, episode of Heresy Grad School and the Remembrancers Retreat. Wow, I have a hard time saying our own name. That's bad. Um, but continuing our coverage of the uh, Coronid Deeps with uh, Professors Jason and Dave. And uh, we're starting on uh, page 52 in uh, the fourth black book, if you're following along, uh, Darkness Descending, if I'm not correct, Jason. Uh, you are correct, Pat. Well, hot damn. Thanks for that uh, helpful intro. All right. I, I do my part. <laughs> do that. So, folks, let's talk about what's going on in the Manashe in common. Last time we talked to you about the absolute turd storm that went down at Port Maul. Horus himself came in to lay the smackdown on some ogrens. He, I mean, there is a photo capture of him stepping on one poor bastard's chest. And honestly, as far as going immortal goes, like, you can be slaughtered by Astartes, but there was only one single guy got stepped on personally by the War Master. He deserved it. He probably did, but checking in now, Port Ma is the biggest defensive capability in the entirety of the Coronet Deeps, and today we're going to talk about the biggest sort of seat of governance, like all of the administrative, the bureaucratic, the financial and industrial power comes out of the Manichaean Commonwealth. So it's more or less in charge of running everything this system uh the like the cyclops cluster is super heavily industrialized i mean it's a subsector with two whole forge worlds uh even if one is kind of like a little rundown hillbilly forge world but this is neither here nor there in the manichaean commonwealth uh things are not going great uh we've already <laughs> talked a little bit about what was going on there with uh abaddon's personal assault on board his battle barge the king eater so right now the battle's pretty much over. Uh, it lasts arguably 11 days, at the very end of which is the fall of that seat of government, the Palace of Light. Now, this is only about five actual days of conflict, where there's back and forth combat uh, with the Sons of Horus, and more or less six days of mortals being routed and pursued 
unto death. So there is now constant air cover. The Sons of Horus maintain both orbital and air supremacy. Uh, they're titans kind of striding around at random, destroying targets that irritate them. And I think this may actually be showing a little bit of the fraying of Horus's command structure. Uh, if you guys remember way back on Istvan 3 when this whole heresy deal was first kicking off, he was having a lot of trouble keeping things in check. Uh, Angron basically cost him a whole lot of time and effort by um, kind of throwing off Horus's yoke there and jetting down to the planet to take care of business itself. So uh, some things are kind of getting away from Horus here, but uh, this is not like a very ordered, you know, reverse compliance. Things are kind of kind of going about at random, going on their own as soon as they're getting out from under Horus's direct command here. So even though it's been very one-sided, uh, there are some loyalist victories here. So a few it calls out specifically. There's an Arbides block force, 774, where you remember that big assault force of, I think it was 16 uh, Tempestus Titan on the landing fields there. Uh, it's where their first major Titan death occurs. It's a reaver named Roxavalia. Uh, and it was actually slain in an ambush by a few knights of... House Veroni that had been kind of stranded on Manashea. Now, if you've ever played Adeptus Titanicus, by this point, you know, knights are infinitely superior to Titans, which are overrated. Now, there are two Warhounds that had been lost previously to Roxavalian, but, I mean, a Reaver is like a mainline combat titan. It's not a scout titan. So this is the first really heavy loss Tempestus has suffered, and it's also had four separate combat titans uh, severely damaged on the fight here. Uh, Hive Ilium, that super heavy tank detachment they rolled out in the beginning, were performing way above what anybody could have expected from them. But they had the Tempestus Legio titans in the front, and they had Sons of Horus right in their flank, which is never where you want Sons of Horus. You want to keep them where you can see them in front, preferably where they can't, like, get an axe all up in your vulnerable business. So as soon as Manashea itself falls, uh, the other hives on Manashea just capitulate soon after. Uh, all of the vassal worlds so, uh, surrounding Manashea Visidae just more or less give up the second they reach, uh, news reaches them. So Abaddon, at the end of this 11 days, he personally leads the assault on the Palace of Light. Uh, it says he more or less leaves it until last, and it's really not much of a contest. It's much more to make a point. Uh, there's no real resistance by this point. He breaks in the front door with his entire Justarian bodyguard, and if mortals were any challenge before... Uh, when they're fresh, these are basically just walking wounded and uh, walking wounded and functionaries. Like these are government officials. These are soldiers that have been pushed back and pushed back from field hospital to field hospital and can barely hold a rifle. If you remember uh, Priamus Beckett from way back a couple of episodes ago, uh, kind of the uh, commander there in the seat of government, he has a small like that's very defiant towards Abaddon, which I guess from where he's standing seems like a good idea at the time, considering Manichea and the entire system don't have much left, but Abaddon pretty casually swats aside. Uh, the Commonwealth itself is pretty much overthrown, and it's taken as an arming and equipment port for uh, the war against the Emperor. So, with this kind of overview, 
I'm going to turn it over to Dave here to give a incredibly interesting look at some of the more detailed particulars. Hey, thanks, Jason. Um, what you know, Jason and I were talking, and I think is both one of our favorite, if not our favorite, um, heresy black books because more than anything else, it is um, it's a story, right? And it talks to itself. So what we've been going through, you know, sort of part one of book four, conquest, is the the story of the Coronet Deeps and. Uh, you know, Horace's dark compliance and his drive to Terra after, um, you know, the massacres at Istvan 3 and Istvan 5, right? This is the beginning of the, uh, of the heresy. But it's, um, it's, it's a story because the rest of the book talks to itself, right? So you get through part one, which is, you know, the, the narrative lore, and then you get into part two, which is like what Jason, I think, is going to talk to you guys about a little bit more later, which is the sort of the classifications of individual planets and, and systems and subsectors. Um, it's almost like a, like a DM manual in some degrees, right? Because it really just drives down into the granularity of um, what tithe class these planets are and what their atmospheric makeup is and um it just the attention to detail that that forge world uh has put into this book is is amazing what i'm going to talk about is um how the story all links together as you go further down um into the into the lore right which is the individual unit descriptions and even the color plates that we get so the um the engagement that jason just mentioned um the Traitor Tempestus, uh, Reaver, uh, Roxvalian, and how it's taken down by a House Veroni Knight. Well, I'm here to tell you guys, if you flip to page 142, uh, you'll get a beautiful color plate of the Mars pattern uh, Reaver class battle titan, uh, Odra Siren. And then on the next page, uh, 143, uh, you'll get a, a color plate of the uh, Reaver titan Rocks Valian, which are part of the War Manipole Telos Epsilon. And um, this was the the Tempestus uh, Manipole that was on uh, Manakia, was part of the assault on, uh, on Hive Ilium. And there's two Warhounds in the bottom there read the uh, description there it just i mean it goes into the whole detail right so it says the reaver titan roxvalian was later destroyed at block fortress 77-4 by a massed charge of house veroni night lancers while the fate of the remaining warhound scorillion remains unconfirmed right so there could be one uh there could be one warhound survives we're not sure gives you that that nugget of lore there and then if we go to page you know flipping flipping forward here actually if we go to page 120 you will see a beautiful this is probably one of my favorite full color plates in uh in book four it's a uh, house veroni serastus night lancer apth Thin sauce, absinthe. I'll probably saying that wrong, but it's it's uh, the favored armor of the House Verona. Absinthos is known to have participated in the charge against the traitor Legio Tempestus Reaver class battle titan Roxvalian at Hive Ilium. Though successful in laying low the Roxvalian, the fate of 
Absinthos, and Elsbitvor remain unknown, but it is likely her mortal remains tombed within the rubble of the shattered hive, right? And then it goes into sort of Elsbitvor's personal heraldry and the heraldry of House Veroni. And so, you know, you get uh, just so much, so much detail and so much lore. Um, and this is really why I love this book, uh, because you can you can just, it, you know, it all talks to each other and it all links back and forth. And uh, Jason, I don't know, are, we're going to keep doing this throughout this episode, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay. All right. Because I've got more for you guys. Um, I've been kind of falling down on the job, but uh, I promise I will be on the ball from now on. So uh, expect more of these uh, these really, really good um, linkages and plots uh, as we go forward. All right, guys. So back to a little bit more of an overview perspective. So let's talk about where things stand in the system. Uh, Manaché has fallen. That didn't take long. The Death Guard have steamed through the Cyclops cluster. Uh, the Commonwealth is basically broken open now. And the problem here is there are a lot of war zones that are still active. The Warmaster really pushed through the Coronid Deeps as fast as possible. He made a stop at Port Maw, uh, particularly uh, putting some attention there, and just completely turned it around as fast as possible to repair and rearm his own ships. Uh, it's basically the biggest base for traders in the Northern Imperium. The entire armada from Port Maw has been stripped and repurposed. Uh, it leaves a skeleton fleet of around 60 line ships left to guard it, which is next to nothing compared to where it is. And it's really too small to patrol and enforce what Port Maw was responsible for covering beforehand uh with steve and austin on i know we talked about you know the patrol fleets where those giant battleships have been downsizing to more practical ships because they're not conquering a galaxy anymore they're patrolling the things they already have but they don't even have enough ships to do that anymore. so this little spot at port maw it's kind of like this little pocket in and it's commanded by a leader of the Thousand Sons, or not Thousand Sons, I'm sorry, Sons of Horus, uh, who was detached and left behind as a battle company uh, by a guy named Talak Thorn. So he commands from the Triumph of Reason, now renamed The Lash, and, uh, you know, perfect supervillain synergy. Uh, the Dark Mechanicum have taken control of Port Maw's ship forges, and they are just constantly running, uh, not really day and night, you know, it's in space, but 24-7 to construct new ships, to repair, rearm the things they already have. On top of that, there's six companies of solar auxilia left behind called the Chthonian Jackals. Now, uh, these guys are kind of interesting because they were originally uh, prospective Legionis Astartes that were deemed too unstable for the conversion process. So instead of letting all that questionable yet unstable talent go to waste, they were installed as Port Ma's garrison instead. Uh, Manashe itself, it's still alive, but it's more or less been reduced to slave labor camp. Uh, overseers from the local populace have been installed because they kind of, you know, they know the terrain and they've essentially thrown in their lot with the Sons of Horus in order to save themselves from being tossed into these same camps. And they are constantly competing with each other trying to enforce like you know ever more brutal quotas now they never state specifically what these labor quotas entail and uh suffice to say it's nothing terrific for the populace but uh 
checking way back uh, with Mezua, Zoa, uh, that Forge World's still hanging out in the Cyclops cluster. Uh, has not been run over yet. It's still blockaded, but uh, still unconquered. So that's got to be a huge pain in the ass for the traders by this point. Um, now, uh, before, we've talked about how the Coronid Deeps as a whole is established along a lane of warp routes that made uh, travel to the galactic never eat soggy waffles east um, and north too uh, really really convenient so this is allowing um, from Manashea this really easy travel for the traders and in Port Ma is allowing easier travel to the galactic north and west so a little further north uh, the Cyclops cluster has basically been reduced to the galactic equivalent of a you know, mind no man's land by the Death Guard. Uh, it's patrolled by Trader Astartes vessels ostensibly, who occasionally stop off to, you know, uh, pick up a tithe or, um, you know, press gang survivors, but it's otherwise basically lawless. So it's really starting to return to like even a compliance level. Uh, to the Galactic North, if you remember the Grail Abyss way from the beginning, uh, this is even worse. Uh, the Grail Abyss was basically paid no attention to other than to get steamrolled over on the way to the Cyclops Cluster. And this is maybe even worse than uh, pre-Crusade lawlessness. Uh, renegades and marauders have moved in uh, back to their old pirate and ways, but also uh, splinter groups and black shields. Uh, different Astartes, you know, just groups of tiny tin a hundred whatever tiny groups of space marines that are just trying to carve out their own space here. Now, um, from here uh, to the galactic west is what's known as the Coronet Reach. Uh, this is strategically less important than the core worlds, Port Ma, uh, the Manichaean Commonwealth, and the war there is still ongoing because it's basically a side thought. Uh, this is actually where, if you remember back from the initial part of Port Ma, the Forge World of Cyclothraith. Uh, this is the Holdfast, uh, the Cyclothraithine Holdfast. And they actually, at the outbreak of hostilities here, they're traitor, yes, and they sent supplies and troops and ships to Horus, but they're trying to spurn direct involvement as much as possible besides that uh, little garrison at Port Ma, uh, because all of their resources are turned towards persecuting this War of Conquest uh, in some next-door worlds. So, um, it's, it's kind of dispatched a pretty significant portion of its Tagmata to the Warmaster, despite trying to remain as, you know, uninvolved as possible, but when the Warmaster directly asks you, you gotta kind of do it. So, this is where one of my favorite characters in and I'm a little biased because I'm a mechanical player, but uh, Archmagos Dracovac is spectacular as a villain. He has like every trait of like a combination Saturday morning cartoon villain and like, oh my gosh, some of like the masterpieces from James Bond all rolled into one. It's terrific. But he's commanding uh, the Cyclothraithine forces and their biggest project right now is a planet called now, um, also operating in the sector, though, because this is an afterthought, Horus is leaving a lot of it to third parties, essentially. Um, you've got rogue traders running around. You've got splinter groups from the Death Guard running around. Uh, you have Pat's boys, uh, House Airthane, kind of just reaving at random, taking whatever they need want. 
they're all operating in the sector independently, kind of on their own agenda, while being kind of nominally pledged to the war master. So they're using his name to kind of get what they want. Uh, and one thing I think they do a really good point of really bringing to the fore here is a lot of these places, they have centuries or even millennia of history uh, before being forced into compliance. It's like, yes, they're part of the greater Horus heresy as a whole, but uh, they have been back and forth with neighboring worlds like uh, Pandex and Mazoa have had centuries of history of competing history uh, before the heresy and the galactic, you know, war at large ever came in. And this is really where they're taking the opportunity to act on it. So this is kind of what has created and cemented a loyalist resistance. Uh, the warp turbulence that was kind of pacified when Horus was rolling through, uh, especially to assault Port Maw, uh, it really resurges in strength. And it variously helps and hurts both sides of the flip. So essentially at the start of 008, um, M31, the Coronet Deeps as a whole is really kind of loosely held together by the traders is sort of this little series of pocket empires. Now, the one we want to look at that's not trader held is what's known as the Agathean Domain. And this is a little cluster of imperial worlds uh, kind of outside the borders of the Ultima Segmentum. Uh, it's referred to as being kind of on the stellar deserts of the northern fringe. So it's a little bit of a backwater world. It's important as far as hive worlds go in their own little system, but it's nothing to get excited about. And this is kind of why they've been more or less left alone. Uh, they're isolated, and they're really only accessible through really storm-prone warp lanes. Uh, from Numinal and the Grail Abyss, which nobody and nothing's coming out of the Grail Abyss right now, and Numinal has got bigger problems. So it was more or less bypassed because it has no real strategic value compared to some of the other things here. So it dispatched, if you'll remember a long, long time ago in the conflict at Port Maw, it dispatched a cruiser squadron to Port Maw, but otherwise it's been uninvolved so far. And out of those eight cruisers that it sent, only a single one returned, uh, a cruiser by the name of Telemachus. Uh, and it brings with it all of the information of the treachery at Port Ma, the turning of the Cyclothrace Mechanicum. Uh, and as it came back, it was recording all of the information through these systems that have been at war. Now, as it returns, it comes bearing a great weight of tragedy because it carries the body of its captain, Jocasta Masai. Uh, she perished at the Port Ma uh, conflict uh, from an armed mutant. So as the Telemachus returns, it sparks this um, sends sparks to this powder keg of sort of fear and political division that was already super tense at Agathon. Uh, and this is the capital of the Agathon domain. Uh, really, everybody back home at Agathon is just catching rumors like everybody else, like we've been talking about this entire time. And suddenly, this ship comes back. They've got pick recordings. They've got um, information. They've got, you know, trends across the line of what's going on to add actual substance to all of these rumors now. And at Agathon, uh, comparatively, it's kind of minor. Uh, they compare it to Necromunda or uh, Manichea itself. It's really, really old. As a hive world, it was founded in the Dark Age of Technology, but it's not very big. Uh, it kind of stands out a little bit in Imperial Records because it did have a very uh, combative 
compliance. And it was only actually taken over uh, when a lot of resources were dedicated to it. And it was taken over around, it was a little less than 200 years ago uh, before the heresy broke out. Uh, It's taken over by specifically the Solar Auxilia and the 60th Expedition Fleet. And this fleet was led by the first Imperial commander, Lord Marshal uh, Ireton Masade. Now, Masade, you'll notice, uh, is a name you just heard. Captain Jocasta Masade of the Telemachus is actually the granddaughter of the guy who took over this Ginwill. Uh, he's the former master of the 60th Expeditionary Fleet. And to this point, he's basically been a hermit. Um, he's been living in retirement. Nobody's really heard from him about 10 years or so. But what happened after compliance... The officer cadre from the 60th Expeditionary Fleet basically intermingled with the local nobility. And over the years, they kind of mingled to the point they were indistinguishable. But those people in the circles of the lower socioeconomic classes didn't really benefit from any of this. Uh, they didn't see any of the benefits that imperial compliance brings with it, uh, like some of the new technologies, the money from trade, the imperial, uh, some of the officers, the laws, the standardization, things like that. So they see it as kind of the nobility getting yet another step up on them, and it really kind of forms this and ferments this imperial resentment in the lower classes. Um, They have a parliament to themselves, and it's uh, divided up into three very distinct groups. First off, you have the very diehard loyalists who absolutely will not hear of any of the Warmaster's command regardless. They are diehard imperial loyalists because they conquered this planet. They were basically gifted this planet as the officer cadre of the 60th expedition. And it's theirs. It's the Imperium's the end. Uh, Then you have sort of a step down, um, those that would remain loyal, but they're very fearful. They've heard and seen what's happened from those who defy horror. And lastly, you have this group of successionists that really see this as an opportunity to kind of return the entire uh, Agathean domain to independence from an Imperium that they never wanted in the first place. Now, this has gotten to the point that it's so bad when the Telemachus returns. The Hive is basically near civil war. And if the Hive, uh, the seat of power on Agathon itself, falls into civil war, a lot of other stuff's going to follow suit. So this is where Masade Sr. approaches the parliament. Uh, He comes in, he's in full dress. This dude's two centuries old. Uh, If you check out his unit profile, he's got like his wacky life support harness slash combat chassis. Uh, Nobody's really seen or heard of him for like almost 20 years. And he brings in the stasis beer with uh, his daughter, Jocasta Masada, granddaughter, Jocasta Masada. He's flanked by his troops, uh, the Solar Auxilia, in the Agathean color of mourning white. And he begins by giving a rousing speech on the dream of the Imperium. Uh, we conquered this planet to foster the expansion of a galactic empire. The Imperium is the way and the light, and turning from them is a disgrace worse than death worse than anything you could possibly see happening and as his speech turns from you know the dreams of a imperium sitting down together to 
like the rage and the indignation that any of the parliament could be considering turning from the light of the imperium and the successors to this you know, nobility that had been granted this gift of imperial compliance could ever consider turning from it. His solar auxilia opened fire on the parliament at large. And these are Volkite weapons meant that will destroy space marines quite handily, open firing into a bunch of unarmed, unarmored civilians. Uh, they are wiped out to a man. And not only is the parliament itself seized in this military coup, also the surrounding worlds are almost immediately placed under martial law, uh, under the direct control of the quote-unquote old guard of the 60th Expeditionary Fleet. And at the head of this, um, Ireton Masade uh, brings the economy and society at large onto a war footing. And he says, we're no longer defending ourselves. We're moving on the offensive to do what's right and take this war to Horus. Damn. Sorry, when you were talking about Volkite weapons being used on unarmed civilians, for some reason I just started thinking about marshmallows. Um, but that's another thing. The effect is probably similar. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not great. Um, while they, uh, yeah, unarmed, unarmored civilians are not going to stand up well to a cohort of uh, Volkite Velatari opening fire at, like, you know, dead zero range. Yeah. So, what I thought might be helpful here, to kind of give a better overall picture of what we're going to look at in the next episode, is to take a look at the two planets themselves that are kind of front and foremost in this conflict. Um, we talked about the Cyclothrathene holdfast several episodes ago, so I wanted to take a look at Agathon and the uh, agri-world that Cyclothrath is really spending a lot of effort on, uh, is a place called Numenal. So Agathon, it's dominated by a trihive structure, uh, really similar in form to Necromunda or Kerr. Uh, like I said, it resisted compliance for about 15 years uh, before it was brought under by Iriton Masade and the Solar Auxilia of the 1522nd cohort called the Lord Marshal's Own. And really, this was where the 60th Expeditionary Fleet was going to ground itself regardless. It was really to the point where the fleet was near exhausted, and they either had to call it a day on a galactic scale and return, or set up shop wherever they landed. So the officer contrary, like we were talking about, kind of uh, replaced the aristocracy and mingled with the nobility uh, and kind of retained a sort of stewardship over around um, populations around 5 billion or so. Uh, there's a very overriding military aesthetic to the culture, kind of similar to Cadia. Uh, not as much so because Cadia is a lot more populous, but still it's... It's very standing, and uh, the Agathean cohorts are a very large standing military. These aren't a, um, a conscripted PDF regiment. These are trained, drilled soldiers uh, to the same standards as the uh, Imperialis military. Now, uh, Numenal is pretty fascinating so far as agri-worlds go. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but whenever I hear agri-world, I kind think of like a planet-wide uh, field of grain and giant industrial combines. And uh, there are some of those, but that's not Numenal. Um, Numenal is actually an oceanic agri-world, uh, which is, I think, kind of really fascinating comparatively. Uh, it was colonized in late uh, 890 M30 in an effort to 
by the Imperium to secure sort of food and a navigational nexus for the region it dominates. Uh, again, it's right in the middle of a chain of really helpful warplanes that can get uh, to places not a lot of other stuff can. So uh, this is a, a world of just basically world-spanning oceans and volcanic ar- uh, archipelago island chains. Well, you can make just about anything out of seaweed, Jason. Absolutely. I've heard good things about algae and kelp, too. Hmm. So, um, oh, and again, like, not every agri world is, you know, a giant field of grain. Or an alpaca farm. Uh, <laughs> uh, remember, kids, uh, as per the book, 15 hours, alpacas exist in the 41st millennium, thanks to R.V. Larn, interstellar alpaca farmer. See, whenever I think of... Uh... Agra worlds i think of i'm trying to think which eisenhorn book it was i think it might have been the second one where uh he's on kind of an agro world but like it's still covered in hives and things like that but you know there's tons of giant combines just constantly working and kind constantly manufacturing like slabs of of food for the populace oh well, yeah so this just isn't a bread basket nation this is an entire but um so what i think's interesting here is they specifically say they were going to exploit numenol not like you know access numenol not you know integrate numenol into the network of imperial you know nutrition dispersal they specifically say they are going to exploit it because of the environment and that it's at the nexus of separately newly discovered super stable warp lanes uh, it's linked to the Manichaean Commonwealth, uh, Agathon, like we just talked about. Uh, oh, uh, so what's interesting, too, uh, it also has potential to what's called the Eastern Fringe. And the Eastern Fringe, we may get into a little bit later, but it's got a couple of uh, interesting systems in it, uh, known as the Angelus and the Honorum system. And typically, those are only accessible uh, via the very uh, tumultuous Hedexus warp chain. And if there is a you know, if there's an alternative to the Hedexus warp channel, you're going to kind of want to take it. So unfortunately, this also made Numenal really attractive as a target in civil wars. Uh, It had a really rapid development after compliance because, of course, you know, the Imperium wants to turn out like those seaweed and fish bricks as fast as possible. Um, So it was set up as a colony by the Segmentum authorities and established with an implant population uh, of about 40 million to uh, different prefab cities, outposts, and whatnot. And it's interesting because it contrasted really obviously to the transorbital shipping structures, and it even has its own geosynchronized void station. But on the ground, it's basically workers set up in a slightly more permanent version of tents, uh, prefabricated structures like this, in order to maintain these harvesting facilities for sea life, for, I would imagine, you know, algae, uh, sort of bioorganics like that, as well as uh, they mentioned tidal power. And uh, their large swaths of sea given over to this aquaculture and these bioorganics, but also uh, they call out epigenetic research from the uh, Mechanicum Biologist division. So they're conducting wacky, like, undersea research here. Apparently, they have a sea lab. I guess this would be a sea lab 3030, but, um, So not only are these seas producing huge quantities of really nutrient-rich compounds, what I thought was kind of interesting, and I pulled the little quote here, uh, there is the outbreak 
of several wars of pseudo-intelligent native species, amphibian and ichthyoid in nature, undergoing active suppression and extermination campaigns by the Exertus Imperialis. So as the Horus heresy is breaking out, the Imperial army is entrenched on Numenor, trying to subjugate its local population of, I don't merfolk? I guess that's a pretty accurate way to describe it. I mean, I guess because I mean, even in the 41st millennium, you have abhumans that are allowed, um, so to speak, to live within the Imperium. And granted, they weren't as xenophobic. At least I think they weren't as xenophobic um, during uh, the heresy. But yeah, I'd, I'd call them merfolk. Yeah. So um, at this point in the Imperium's history, they are on an oceanic farm planet exterminating a race of merpeople. So that's Numenol in a nutshell. Merpeople genocide. Take that home with you. So just a mer- more violent version of the movie Shape of Water. There you go. Oh, God, that movie. Don't even get me started. But, uh, Dave, you got anything for us? Yeah. Um, so you know what I love about part, I think, the story, right, is um, Horace has obviously moved on. Right? He's, he's taken his sizable fleet after the conquest of Port Ma and and he's Mortarian is with him right to a large extent and they're they're moving on they're they're driving to Terra this is sort of the aftermath of of uh the spear the tip of the spear the strike that broke Port Ma which Horus had to do right that was that was something that he had to do um and then he could move on to Terra he could secure the warp route but what i love about this is is this is the story of what happens after right so um the grail abyss is essentially cut off and in anarchy right we just we have no idea um y- you know and much of what we saw in the other systems, you know, they're either sort of in anarchy or they're being ruled by a combination of dark mechanicum uh, and uh, and traitor uh, Astartes overlords. And life is not good. Um, but is- there are <laughs> no, it's not. It's it's going to get worse, as we'll see. Um, you know, and hopefully, ho- hopefully, you guys have have done a little bit of research and done your homework and and. Uh, and read a little bit forward. But um, so if you guys are wondering where Jason is coming up with these uh, crazy planet descriptions, it is page 74 uh, of the uh, principal worlds of the Coronid Reach, um, Agathon and Numenal. Um, and you'll find all the others there as well. Um, but, uh, you know, what I, w- what I want to touch on now, Jason, I think, and uh, we started with the sort of the sacking of Hive Ilium, right? This is the last resistance of the Manichaean Commonwealth. Um, um, and it's it's described as the the palace of light is is the last holdout. It's literally sort of the White House, right? It's it's uh, the Situation Room. It's the White House. It's the last resistance of uh, you know um, loyalists on on Manichaea. And there's this great call out box. Well, it's not a call out box. It's a it's a full color play. Let me see if I can find it. Um, of the sons of Horus, our favorite antagonists, right? Sort of the, the villains of this story. So page 149 is a sons of Horus reaver chieftain. Chieftain Ka Lothal, which is, I mean, it sounds like a demon name to me, but Patrick said It's a that. more demonic version of a falafel, so leave him alone. <laughs> 
just yeah it's patrick said it's chthonian uh, and so yeah. I, you know I, pat, <laughs> pat would know um but so this guy is described as a sons of horus seventh assault company uh chieftain and he takes uh he takes the lead on uh the assault of the palace of light um and it says, according to Estelle, which I'm assuming is just a pic or some kind of a picture, later recovered on Goth after the war. And you may be asking yourself, where the fuck is Goth? I asked myself the same question. I said, where the fuck is Goth? And I found out that Goth is an imperial forge world in the Gothic sector uh, of the Segmentum Obscurus. Now, it's not mentioned uh, specifically in uh, this uh, this sort of uh, review of, of the worlds of the uh, Coronet Deeps. But that just makes it even better, right? Like, it's fucking here. It's in Goth, Goth. And you get to the Gothic region, which is where we are, um, you know, several uh, millennia later, and, and that's where it's discovered. So this guy, uh, he is noted as having exceptional savagery. Um, he commands the 7th Assault Company. He participates in the final assault on the gates of the Palace of Light at Hive Ilium, um, and he kills a lot of people. Uh, we can only imagine in uh, very gruesome and uh, visceral ways. So, but what also is really interesting uh, is the the color plate that's right next to him, Patrick. You you probably will like this, and I, I feel it's appropriate to mention it now. Uh, even I'm all ears. We've kind of gone past it, but uh, it is a Sons of Horus Terminator in Tartarus pattern Terminator uh, armor. Who he's he's an unnamed legionary from the Vengeful Spirit, uh, but he takes part in the boarding of the Triumph of Reason. So if you guys remember back a couple episodes when we talked about the Battle of Port Ma and the boarding of the Triumph of Reason, this is a Terminator who is in Tartarus pattern, unusual for the Sons of Horus, um, also not in the sable or the black of the Jesterin, uh, but in green and with uh, significant Chthonian gang markings. And so it's it's sort of hypothesized here that this would be a recent formation, perhaps uh, a reserve formation kept on the Vengeful Spirit specifically for uh, boarding and counter-boarding action. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and Pat, yeah. if you... Can you see the picture? Oh yeah, no, no, no. I'm I'm looking at it right now, and like yeah. it, the thing with the Chthonian uh, gang symbols and stuff like that. They they really talk about that post um, the drop site massacre. Um, they start talking a whole lot about in uh, Vengeful Spirit, even um, how the Sons of Horus seems to seem to have like taken on their old selves. Because I mean, Chthonia was basically a gang planet it was it was a lot of hives with tons of gangs and that's how they recruited yeah um, and that's why they're so vicious and so deadly um you know not not brutal like the world eaters i'd say but like still like they start forming their own little groups um and so, i really like the fact that like he has his lodge tokens displayed right there i think it's on his right shoulder shoulder pad yeah Those, well they uh, both the, they both yeah. do yeah. yeah, and I was just thinking, what a what an awesome modeling would be because I don't think the four, uh, even the um, the Reaver models, I don't think they come with those like uh, mirror coins or lodge coins uh, modeled on them. Um, they do. I think 
I have one around here somewhere, you know, because I've got like 50 of them lying around that need to be painted. Um, they do have the chains and they do like all the armor that you see. If you're looking at the Sons of Horus Reaver, uh, Reaver Chieftain, like all of that does come uh, as part of the pack, part of the models, minus the uh, the jump pack. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's even better, man. That's just totally badass. Yeah. And it's just really interesting to see Sons of Hor- Horus Tartars, because like you said, they're most well-known for cataphracty. I mean, that's what Justerin were in. That's what Abaddon was in, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, all right. So thing before, near and dear to my heart. Is the uh, the 152nd uh, Solar Auxilia or the Lord Marshal's own Iratan Masade? Uh, this is this is my Solar Auxilia uh, army. I I started this army um, kind of by accident. Uh, I think I think uh, Dave Sampson, uh, Black Label Painting, uh, had some beautiful models that I just like fell into, and then that just that became my thing. And Jason, I don't know if you remember this, but as we were going down the rabbit hole, I think in one of our first or second episodes, uh, we encountered the 152nd again on bot. So they are not out of this fight. In 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 no small measure uh, are they out of this fight. So uh, if you've been listening to grad school for, for the whole time that we've been doing this, uh, you may remember that the 152nd and a certain Lord Colonel uh, lead a strike on the world of bot, even as the moon is falling down on it. Um, uh, so there's there's some there's some great uh, great some great foreshadowing going on, some great plot linkages here. And I, I dude, I have not read all the black books. Far be it. It's part of the reason why we do this. Uh, it's part of the reason why I do it. It gives me an excuse to get into it. Um, and I, when I read about uh, the uh, Lord Marshall's granddaughter coming home in a stasis casket. And then that was the the reason for him to sort of come out of seclusion. And he walks into the, you know, the Senate, which is essentially a corrupt, defunct organization that can't get its head out of its ass, uh, which, you know... Um, Sort of rings true, I think maybe a little bit in in today's circumstances, uh, you know. And he sort of just walks in as this old, you know, uh, warrior who stood for everything that the imperial truth, you know, was supposed to be, and just it's like is is the the real deal. And he takes control of Agathon and, you know, reactivates the old guard um, and strikes back at this, uh, at this, at this traitorous, uh, you know, turn of events, man. I mean, that was, to me, that was like fucking awesome. That was, that was as good as it gets. And uh, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm super excited to go down the rabbit hole, even for you guys. Um, Like I said, I mean, we're going to take our time with this and, uh, we're gonna we're gonna give it all the love that uh, that we can give. So, uh, Jason, Pat, I don't know. That's all I've got. I think for this one. All right, guys. Well, before we leave you, uh, wanted to touch on that lork Dave was talking about before. Uh, speaking of that solar auxilia cohort and vicious assholes, a uh, perfect segue into this little section called Retribution on page 55. So the Coronid Reach and the Deeps itself, uh, it's held by the traitor. Maybe not firmly. Like we said, it's a little bunch of pocket empires at this point. 
scattered amongst galactic wastelands. But all is not well for the traitors, uh, and the very first loyalist attack comes from the darkness of the Grail Abyss. Now, if you remember the Grail Abyss way back from the first couple of episodes, we did on the Corned Deeps. Uh, these guys were more or less a band as the folks on Dominica Minor and in the Cyclops Cluster tried to track their defenses. And that really didn't go so hot. That just put them all in the same place for the Death Guard to steamroll over them all at once. So at this point, it's not going super well for the loyalists except for this one bright little point of light the only inhabited world uh in the grail abyss now is gethsemane colonus now under the new tithe inquisitors for horus now this is a rainforest world and it's basically been cleared for export since it was taken over and it's not really a big change for the folks on the ground besides the harsher quota but uh if you remember back to those first couple of episodes uh we talked about a single little gladiator class frigate uh that hauled ass into gethsemane uh third legionnaires and 12th legionnaires dead across it uh this is not that however another single ship shows up in gethsemane uh this time it's the red talon the battle barge of the Iron Hands clan Morgul, captained by none other than Autek Moore, uh, possibly the most vicious loyalist in the Imperium. And if I had to like a single loyalist, it would be this asshole. So Autek Moore, uh, this is kind of where he gets his, uh, kind of gets his start almost. Uh, Want to check back on that bot episode? Yeah, this is a smaller version of that. Uh, after the initial attack on Gethsemane Colonus uh, from the Red Talon. Uh, he wipes out the defenses very early on, and anything past that is near non-existent. Uh, the planetary militia and the Horosite overseers are routed and destroyed within an hour. Uh, the seats of government on the planet are destroyed, and all but a very few of the ruling class are executed on the spot, besides a few that are hauled off into the holds of the Red Talon for questions later. Now, uh, just as soon as the survivors are poking their heads out and starting to rejoice a little bit that the overseers have been executed and there's no longer a ruling class. Uh, the improvised adamantic devices in each of the five major cities on Gethsemane detonate and more or less wipe the planet clean of life. So to me, Autek Moore, he shows up, kills everyone, and leaves. It's like, uh, it's like that old school tuxedo mask from Sailor Moon. Where he's like, my job here is done. Moon's like, but you haven't done any. But instead of not doing anything, he just kills everyone. And then he drops a moon on your planet. So this is setting his precedent for how he's going to go about prosecuting the loyalists. There are no bystanders. You're loyal or you're a traitor to the death, the end. And yeah, this, this guy gives zero fucks, man. He literally yeah. sets off five ginormous dirty bombs in each of the hives, you know, in the hive centers. And um, yeah, and just, and leaves, right? I mean, this guy is going to give Horus and Mortarian a run for their money in terms of brutality and lethality. Um he is uh like jason said if uh you're drawn to the uh if you're drawn to the dark side uh, this motherfucker might be your favorite loyalist 
So guys, that sets us up pretty well for next time on Heresy Grads. We will get into the Cyclothrathene Mechanica, their persecution of the Numinal system, and the Hammer of the Deep. Why can't they all just leave fish people alone? Because they're weird, and if Shape of Water is anything to go by, they should be exterminated. That's the official standpoint of Heresy Grad School. <laughs> God damn it. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening in. Uh, Dave, Jason, thank you again for an absolutely amazing episode. Uh, if you haven't been to the Facebook page recently, we've got a post up asking about um, your lore questions, your heresy questions. We'd love to get those. We'd love to we'd love to figure them out. And do me a favor, you know, give us good questions. Give us good, hard questions. Don't give us silly things like, you know, why did why did Mag or why Magnus did nothing wrong or what have you? You know, Magnus was a shit. Let's just leave it at that. Um, I, and I play Thousand Sons. There you go. So That's the firm stance of Heresy Grads. Uh, we did say we were going to try and answer at least one question per episode. Let's keep it like a reasonable goal and say one. Uh, I would like to answer one today, uh, which go for it. You know, summed up. Uh, why are Custodes the best and Astartes the worst? And the answer to that is sort of a trick question. They're both the worst because not everybody can be a robot. Now, now hold on a sec, Jason. I will put, preface this by saying this is the last stupid question that we will accept. Probably. We may make fun of them if we get them. Okay. F- fair enough. We, um, we had a really good um, on Blackstone Fortresses, and we'll say that, Michael, I'm still uh, digging through the extant archives on this one. Um, but the question that Michael posed was, where were the Blackstone Fortresses uh, during the Horus Heresy? Which is a fair question. Now, especially since we're covering the Coronet Deeps, which is what the Gothic sector will become in uh, in later years, right? In, in Warhammer 40,000. Uh, we're right there. We're in the Gothic sector. Um, so the extant knowledge right now is is pretty slim it's contained to the uh battlefleet gothic core book um there's a little bit in the battlefleet gothic armada supplement but not a lot um and then of course there's some stuff in the fall of cadia um the uh gathering storm books book one and book three Mm -hmm. Um, there's a little bit in there as well. So what we know is that the Blackstone Fortresses uh, were not discovered until M33. Um, So we don't know if they just weren't in Imperial space at that time, if they hadn't been encountered. Or if perhaps they had been moved. Um, the uh, the the knowledge on the Blackstone Fortresses is there anywhere from seventeen thousand to uh, three million years old or older. Um, I'm leaning to older. Uh, I'm leaning to War of Heavens, but I can't back that up right now. Um, with anything that's hard fact, uh, but I would say they're definitely older than um, you know the. Uh, sort of 17,000 years so when they just when they were discovered in m m m33 um but uh but yeah michael it was a great question and if i find an answer for you on blackstone fortresses during the horse heresy uh i will get back to you but right now that's um that's all i've got so thank you for that (laughs) jason did you want to try and do your custodes question oh no that one's simple 
uh, Custodes and Astartes are both the worst. It is the Mechanicum's galaxy we just live in. Huh. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Um, keep on submitting your questions. Keep on telling us what you're liking about this. Keep on telling us what you don't like about this. Your feedback is important. Um, but from Dave, Jason, and I, thanks for listening. Uh, Dave, can you please, for heaven's sakes, kick Craig out? He needs to go away. Fuck off, Craig. Please, Craig. Just fuck up.